I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Rita Bosworth, the founder and director of the Sister District Project. Isn't that nice? After the 2016 election, a lot of us felt a lot of emotions, and most of them weren't good. Despair, anger, helplessness, hopelessness, you name it. But today's guest, Rita Bosworth, used those emotions as fuel. She founded the Sister District Project, and that's an organization dedicated to turning states blue by winning state legislative elections. Because as she reveals in this conversation, that's where the real power is. If we want to stop, say, extreme partisan gerrymandering or stop those draconian abortion restrictions to climate change policy, state legislative races is where the focus should be. The Sister District Project was founded and led by women, including women of color, and four out of five of them quit their jobs to work with Sister District full time. I really love this org. After the 2016 election, I felt particularly helpless because I live in a blue state. The Sister District Project was actually one of the first orgs that I signed up for in 2016. It was a way for me to get involved on a national level, and it helped me feel less helpless. So this interview is particularly special for me. Here is Rita Bosworth explaining the early days of the Sister District Project and how she got started. I just want to talk about where you were in 2016, where you were emotionally and professionally. What made you start it? Because you started right after the election, right? I did. And, you know, I actually was not involved in politics or campaigns up until the election. I'm an attorney. I was a public defender for 12 years and happily defending the public uh, with that job when the election happened. I certainly feel that I was pretty informed about what was going on, but I was not the person um, that had been working on campaigns or canvassing for candidates or anything like that. And I also live in a very blue area. I live in the Bay Area in California. So when the election happened, you know, we were all hit with, it felt like a gut punch. You know, it felt like you couldn't breathe. It felt like, uh, what has happened to our country? What is happening to our world? Who are these people that are electing this man? And, and because we were surrounded by progressive Democrats in our areas, it felt even more unfathomable that this was happening in the country that we loved. So what struck me was a couple of things. First of all, in California, we actually had a, a great year in 2016. We elected a supermajority of Democrats to our state legislature. We were choosing between two Democrats for our open Senate seat. So no matter what, we were going to send a Democrat to the Senate. And yet that seemed to be completely at odds with with what the country had decided in the presidential election. But that's not actually true because Democrats actually are a majority of the country. We won the popular vote by almost 3 million votes. We just don't have a majority of electoral power. And that's what I really fixated on was why is it that the majority of the country is being ruled in every branch of government by the minority of voters. That didn't sit well with me. The other thing that felt very acute was that there were lots of people just like me who lived in these deep blue areas who wanted to do something, but weren't sure what, because, you know, we already called our congressperson and our senator. They agreed with us. We had elected them. That's what everybody says to do. Call your representative. Well, we can do that, but 
they're they're already there. So what else can we do? My congresswoman has been in Congress for a couple of decades. She's great, but she's going to win with 70% of the vote every every two years. She doesn't need me to canvas for her. She probably doesn't need my $50, but I can canvas for somebody. I can give $50 to somebody. I want to do it for somebody where it's going to make a difference. And that's how I came up with the idea of sister district. We need to organize the people primarily who live in these deep blue districts and channel those resources to places in other parts of the country where the Democratic candidate is in a competitive election and they need a boost in order to win in a race that is strategic for Democrats. And so that, you know, I literally was, it was a week after the Trump election. I was sitting on my couch at home with my laptop. I built this website and just put it up into Facebook, into the internet. And it really caught on because I think a lot of people were feeling the exact same way that I was, which was, I want to do something, but what can I do that is going to be strategic. And this this was what I came up with. Oh my God, I, I love that. I love you. I love that story because, <laughs> because that's exactly how I was feeling. I mean, we were, you know, you were mirroring my feelings, you know, in California, I was in Washington and you picked up your laptop and you built a website. And I mean, it must've happened. I mean, it was, it felt like it was lightning fast because I remember after those few weeks, I was looking for something and I don't know how I came across this district, but I came across it. I signed up. And so I was looking through my email last night to see, you know, exactly when I signed up. And I found an email from February of 2017. Now, that's four months after the election. And I remember getting a welcome email, you know, welcome to, you know, Sister (laughs) District. And, you know, that was great. Shortly after that, I got an email about your first win, your first electoral win. If I remember correctly, it was in Delaware. There was a Mm -hmm. Senate race. Stephanie Hansen in Delaware. And I just want to emphasize again, and you can correct me on the dates, but this was just four months after the election. How did you how did you manage that? It is wild when you look back at the timeline. I mean, I think right after the election, we were all in a different state of mind. These were not normal times. And so I think we all did things that we might not have otherwise done. I mean, I ended up leaving my job and changing careers. Like that's not something I ordinarily would have would have done or would have even thought I was going to do. But it was it was a moment in time where everybody was so scared and anxious and desperate to do something that that it it happened, you know. So I built the website. I actually didn't know the other co-founders when I built the website. We found each other on the internet. We found each other through the website. Um, and pretty quickly we started building an email list and figuring out a plan for what we wanted to do. Um, so really even by December, we had this plan of sistering groups of volunteers with important races. And what we actually focused on was state races. And I can talk a little bit about that. We don't do any federal races. We focus only on state legislative races. And again, I came into this without uh, having worked in politics. So my first thought was actually, well, we should we should do this sistering of volunteers to flip Congress. But the more I talked to people, the more I learned about the landscape, the more I realized that we will never flip Congress in a long-term and sustained way unless we win back the states because states control redistricting. Now, that's a big topic right now because the Supreme Court just 
issued an opinion on partisan gerrymandering where they said that it's completely fine. That is the reason that in so many instances, Republicans are able to hold on to control even if Democrats get a majority of votes. It's because they have very smartly taken control of the states. And once you have control, you can really draw the maps to keep yourself in control. It's it's a completely insidious and anti-democratic process. So when I started understanding that that's what was happening, uh, I realized we've got to focus on the states. Democrats really had not focused on the states at all. It's almost like wanting to remodel your bathroom and you know taking out the sink, taking out the tub, but then realizing that your foundation is rotted. And you've got to fix that foundation before you can actually install all of your new appliances. That's what working in the states is. It's fixing our foundation so that once our foundation is strong, we actually can rise up and be the majority of of government in power because we're the majority of people. So we decided to focus on states. And then the question became, well, who's having elections? Now, the cool thing about states is that every year is an election year when you're talking about the states. So no matter if it's an even year, an odd year, presidential year or not, there's always a state legislative election happening. But of course, 2017 was a really uh, sparse year for elections because it was the year after presidential. But we did find this race in Delaware. It was a special election in Delaware. You're right. It happened in February of 2017. And we got right to it. We were like, okay, we've got to start somewhere. This is the election that's happening. This is where we're going to start. And it was an incredibly strategic election because whoever won that seat, whichever party won that seat, that party would control the Senate chamber. And that's what we're talking about when we um, discuss strategic elections. You know, it's there are over 6,000 state legislative seats in the country, and we'd love to win them all, but they don't all have equal strategic weight. What we really like to look for are those elections where we can flip a chamber or hold a chamber blue or, you know, bust a Republican supermajority, create a Democratic trifecta. There are actually a lot of opportunities where with just winning a few states, races in in one state legislative chamber, you can have a bigger strategic impact. And that was the case in Delaware. When our candidate Stephanie Hansen won in Delaware, the Democrats maintained control of the Senate chamber by one vote. So that was a great race. And it gave us a lot of confidence that our model was going to work because we did exactly what we said we were going to do. We publicized the race to people all over the country and donations poured in. People made phone calls. People went to Delaware to knock on doors. People wrote postcards for Stephanie. And that is exactly what the the crux of the organization is. It's taking all of the resources that we have, our Democratic majority, and channeling them to races that matter in an efficient an effective way. And so that was a real boost for us uh, winning that race. Uh, that must have felt so good, like moving from within a matter of months, you know, from this this place of despair and like not knowing what to do to having this win in, in one state and realizing that you could apply that model. That must have felt really good. I mean, it, it feels good to me just listening to the yeah. story. <laughs> no, it did. I, I remember where I was when we learned about the results. And it was really the first time since the election that I felt, okay, we can do this. It's going to be a lot of work. We're going to have to do this race by race, but but we can do it. And it's, it's the power of the people. Um, it's very uplifting. You know, one of the things that struck me when listening to your story, and, you know, I don't know if there's an answer to this question, but I've heard countless stories of people pivoting after the 2016 election. 
you know, some people ran for office and some started organizations and some were more successful than others. But there was still very little focus on state legislative elections, even amongst political veterans. And we knew that there was extreme partisan gerrymandering. We knew that it was a big problem. I think this is something that progressives and Democrats, you know, especially those who are driving strategy, I think this is something they consistently overlook. You know, even now, you know, we're focused on the presidential race. So I guess my question is, how did you, you know, as someone who hadn't been in politics, how did you hone in on this? How did you know that this is where the power lies? No, I mean, it's it's not the obvious solution, right? And so the obvious solution for everybody after Trump was, well, we've got to flip Congress because that's the the next big thing that's coming up in 2018. You know, we had a, Democrats had a very bad Senate map in 2018. There obviously was no presidential race in 2018. So people automatically thought, well, we've got to flip Congress. And it's not wrong. I mean, obviously, I'm very glad that we flipped Congress. But the problem with that thinking is that if you don't fix the problems of how congressional races are run, then it's going to be very difficult to keep control of Congress because congressional elections happen every two years. Years, and they each cost millions of dollars. And if you are running every two years and your budget is millions of dollars and you have unfair maps, that is going to be way less efficient than putting those resources into winning back state legislatures, getting better maps drawn, and then really just seeing congressional races go your way because they're more fair. And I can give you a couple of examples to really illustrate this point. In North Carolina in 2016, Donald Trump actually won by less than 50%. He got about 49% of the vote. And that same year, they elected a Democratic governor in North Carolina. So that's really a very purple state that the voters are really split 50-50 in that state. And yet in 2016, Republicans captured 10 of the 13 congressional seats. And that's because of the gerrymandering that was happening at the state level, because Republicans have a majority in the state legislature. So you see that instance where Democrats really should have an additional three or four seats in Congress in that state. They don't because of gerrymandering at the state level. And those three or four seats that should have gone to Democrats, you know, that's affecting us all over the country. Sometimes people in California think, well, you know, we'll just throw up our hands and build a big blue wall around our state and we'll just take care of our own people. But that's that's not possible. We live in a country where there's a federal government. And so those congressional seats that go to Republicans, even though they should go to Democrats, those folks are voting on issues that affect us in the rest of the country. So we really can't ignore this. And the way to fix it is actually not to pour more money into those congressional seats in North Carolina. It's to win back the state legislature in North Carolina, get fair maps drawn, and then those congressional seats will come to us. So it's a matter of being smarter about it, but it's not obvious. And so it takes people a little while to understand what the real problem is. No, you're right. It's not obvious. And, you know, that brings to mind the topic of gerrymandering in relation to courts. Over the past couple of years, a lot of focus from the Democrats has been on challenging these extreme maps in court. But the Supreme Court just came out with a decision ruling that the federal courts could not determine whether election maps were were too partisan, right? which is essentially just a green light for even more gerrymandered district maps without having to risk a high court legal challenge. So where does that decision leave us? I mean, where do we go from here? 
Yeah. I mean, it was not unexpected, unfortunately, but it's just a terrible decision. And the majority just really lied. I mean, they said there's no way for a court to fix this when courts have actually been fixing this for the better part of a decade. So it was very dishonest. It was a completely political decision, but there are a couple of things to say about it. Um, I always say that there are three ways to fix gerrymandering. One is in the courts. And while they have said now that federal you know, Supreme Court isn't going to get involved in partisan gerrymandering, you can still have a remedy in state courts. And we saw that in Pennsylvania in 2018. Pennsylvania is another state that was very badly gerrymandered, even though in 2016 they had a Democratic governor and a Democratic senator. Republicans controlled 13 of their 18 congressional seats. They litigated, the Democrats sued, but they sued based on the state constitution, not the federal constitution. And so the the case stayed entirely within the state judicial system and the Supreme Court actually said they couldn't get involved. And what ended up happening was a neutral third party redrew the congressional maps to be more fair. And lo and behold, in 2018, Democrats now have nine seats and Republicans have nine seats. So it actually works. Courts can intervene and bring balance back to this map drawing process. The Supreme Court just blatantly ignored that. Um, but I think the the lesson here is that you can still litigate. You just have to do it within the states based on the state constitution, and that can be effective. Of course, litigation is time consuming and it takes a lot of resources. You know, it takes a lot of time. And so it's not necessarily the best way to do it. Another way to address gerrymandering is through a ballot initiative. And several states have done this. And the interesting thing is that gerrymandering is actually, there's bipartisan support against partisan gerrymandering. So you will get uh, people from both parties voting to take the power away from politicians to to pick their voters. We saw that in Michigan in 2018. I think over 60% of their voters approved a change to their constitution to bring about independent redistricting. So that's another method. It's also time consuming, not all states allow for citizen ballot initiatives. So the third way, and I think the most effective way to do this is to win back power in state legislatures. Um, Part of the problem with court decisions and ballot initiatives is even if you win, those go back to the state legislature to be interpreted. And if the state legislature is controlled by Republicans, they are going to do everything they can to not implement those policies. And so really the best way to do this is to win back power in the state legislatures. And that's what we focus on. Is there an example where, you know, something's been decided by the courts or by a ballot initiative where they haven't actually implemented it? Yeah, that's happening in Michigan right now. In 2018, uh, they did the, the people did vote to amend the Constitution to bring about independent redistricting. And yet the Republicans who control the Michigan legislature are now trying to pass a number of laws that would restrict the initiative and make sure it doesn't go into effect. I mean, we're also seeing that in other contexts. I know that Um, In Florida in 2018, the voters passed Amendment 4, which was the initiative to restore voting rights to felons. And yet the state legislature that is controlled by Republicans has now passed a law saying that you can't vote unless you've paid all your restitution and all of your fines, which for many people are just insurmountable challenges. And it was not uh, what the ballot initiative was intended to do. So we're seeing time and time again how no matter what you do, if... (laughs) Republicans control state legislatures, they're going to do every single thing they can to prevent any of these 
policies, even if they are court ordered or voter mandated from taking effect. Right. It just seems like one party is just not going to follow the law. And so you have to keep them out of state offices or state positions to, I don't know, it just seems like a, a never ending problem. It right? is. And, and in fact, you know, when Republicans take control in the states, the first thing they do is they restrict voting rights. I mean, you have to hand it to them for their strategic prowess, because what they're doing is they understand they're not a majority, right? They know that they don't have the numerical majority and they know that elections aren't really won or lost by a majority of voters because a majority of voters don't vote. So they hone in on the mechanisms to keep themselves in power and the policies to suppress Democratic voters. That is how they keep themselves in power. So the first thing they do is they restrict voting, whether that means eliminating polling places, restricting the time for voting, um, making, you know, there are some states that are implementing a lot of requirements for people who register voters. This is the first thing they do because this will depress Democratic voter turnout and keep them in power. Then they gerrymander the maps to make sure that they are choosing their voters and not letting the voters choose the politicians. So they don't go after policies when they first get into power. They go after the mechanisms of keeping themselves in power. And there's something to be learned from that. When Democrats get into power, we should be expanding the right to vote, which is happening in many democratically controlled states. The problem is that the Republicans have so much power in the states right now that we're seeing a lot more voter suppression than ability to to expand the vote. Right. I don't know if you've read Carol Anderson's One Person, One Vote. I've um, read excerpts of it. It's really good. So we, we talked about this exact same thing because she goes over the history of voter suppression in that book. And we talked about the fact that at some point it just seems easier to focus on policy than to spend so much time and energy and money keeping people from voting. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just logically, it seems like that would be the case, but it's working for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, there are so many people that like to think that, oh, both parties are equally bad or both parties do the same tricks. And it, it's it's just not true. You know, it's not that Democrats are perfect. We have our flaws. I mean, Democrats gerrymander as well. You know, that's that's something that happens on both sides. But when you look historically at at what the parties do when they get into office, you know, it is true when Barack Obama was elected, he tried to work in this bipartisan fashion to get health care approved. When Republicans get into office, the first thing they do is try to make it harder for Democrats to ever get in office again. You know, that's that's just a fact. Um, and it's it's a sad commentary on politics today, but it's it's something that we need to understand with eyes wide open. And we need to start making sure that we're taking appropriate measures to combat that. So do you happen to know what the state legislative balance is right now, percentage wise between Democrats and Republicans? Oh, overall, you know, I'm not actually sure overall, but I will say that right now, Republicans have 22 trifecta states, which is a state where they control all three branches of government. So the governorship, the state Senate and the state legislature and Democrats only have 14 trifecta states. And so when you're wondering why are we seeing all of these horrible bills passed at the state level, it's because in 22 states, Republicans have unilateral power. There's literally nothing that can stop them from passing all of this legislation. And I will say, you know, 
we started Sister District with the understanding that we had to win back power in the states in order to reverse the effects of gerrymandering and win back basic fairness in state legislatures and Congress. But another big reason we do it is because states are so important from a policy perspective. And people are starting to understand that as well, because we're seeing the federal government do nothing or even reverse rights that we've had. You know, you look at health care, you look at reproductive rights. You look at voting rights, you look at the environment, gun control. None of those things are going to be protected at the federal level going forward for a long, long time because of the makeup of the Supreme Court. So all of those things are going to go to every single state. And the most obvious example is, of course, all of the laws restricting abortion that we're seeing pass through with flying colors in all of these red states. Unfortunately, that is going to be the new norm. You know, the Supreme Court is going to eliminate more and more protections federally. And that means every state is going to have the ability to make those policies. Now, we are seeing a few democratically controlled states expand abortion rights, and that's fantastic. But the flip side is that we're seeing many, many red states try to restrict it or eliminate it entirely. So our country is moving in a a completely different direction than we've been in for a couple of decades. And people need to understand that the states are becoming so, so, so important, both for the gerrymandering and congressional representation, but also for these policies that affect people every single day. Right. You know, that's really interesting because that's another reason why I'm really excited about your org, because, you know, when those, for example, when those abortion decisions were coming down, right, the restrictions, you know, people say, oh, you know, I'm going to fight really hard for whoever wins the nomination for the presidency. You know, I'm going to fight to get Donald Trump out of office, you know, completely ignoring what's happening at the state level. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's actually where this is all happening. Right. Not that we don't need to get him out of office. I mean, we do need to get him out of office. Right. But I mean, still, if you don't focus on this, then that doesn't really change the trajectory of these decisions very much. Right. And and I I hope people are starting to understand that, um, you know, a lot of people don't even know who their state legislator is because that's not what we see in the national news. That's not what people are talking about. And people just completely overlook the vast amount of power that they have. So I hope that people start to understand that local and state politics are actually very, very powerful. And yes, I agree, of course, we need to fight to get Donald Trump out of office. The nice thing about participating in state elections, though, is that you can do both. You know, if you're volunteering for a state candidate and you get somebody out to vote for that, their state legislative candidate, they also can vote for the folks, uh, the Democrats running at the top of the ticket. That doesn't always happen in reverse, because if somebody doesn't know the name of the person running for the lower level office, they might just leave that part of the ballot blank. Um, But you can really do a lot of good layered uh, get out the vote work by working for local and state candidates. said that in 2019 and 2020, that may be our last chance, right? And I think you mean in relation to the census and the redrawing of the maps. What did you mean by that? Like, why is this our last chance? Yes. So we we are specifically calling 2019 and 2020 our last chance races because exactly what you said, the census is taking place in 2020, which means that in 2021, 
all of the states, every single state is going to redraw their voting district lines. And those voting district lines are going to be in place for the next 10 years. So, and again, in 34 states, it is the state legislature, the political party in power that gets to draw those voting district maps. And so we have to win as much power in the states as we can in 2019 and 2020 in order to make sure that we have the leverage to draw those maps fairly, which are going to influence our districts for the next 10 years up until 2031. Um, so that's why we're calling this our, these our last chance races. This is, this is really the final push to win back that power in the states that's going to keep having an effect for years to come. So how many of those seats can we realistically win? You said there are 34 between 2019 and 2020. Well, there are there are 34 states where the state legislature controls redistricting. Um, There are I think there are seven states that only have one congressional seat. So districting doesn't matter because they don't have enough people to even draw a district. And then there's a handful of states like California or um, Arizona that have independent redistricting in some manner. You know, there's independent redistricting. There are some states that don't need it. But in 34 states, it's the legislature that's controlling the lines. What we are focused on are those states where the legislature controls redistricting, where we have a shot at flipping those chambers blue. So part of this depends on who's having elections. This year in 2019, the big state having elections is Virginia. You know, Virginia is another one of those states that will blow your mind how badly gerrymandered it is. Virginia should be a blue state. It has a Democratic governor. It has two Democratic senators. They went for the Democratic presidential candidate the last three election cycles. They went Obama, Obama, and Clinton by five. And yet in 2016, Republicans controlled seven of their 11 congressional seats because of the gerrymandering in the state legislature. So it's one of those states that should be a blue state. It's just very hard to overcome the entrenchment of Republican power. Now, in 2017, we were in Virginia in a lot of seats and we did great. We brought Virginia within one seat of flipping their House of Delegates. Now, keep in mind, and this is another example of the power of gerrymandering, Democrats actually had 10% more votes than Republicans in 2017. So Democrats voted by 10% more than Republicans. And yet Democrats couldn't even flip the House of Delegates. I mean, that's the power of gerrymandering. Democrats didn't have to win by one vote or one seat. They had to win by 10 points in order even just to bring it to 50-50. But we did bring them up to 49 out of 100 seats. So we almost brought them to 50-50. And Virginia's having elections again this year. They have their elections in the off years. So we're in a really good position this year in 2019 to flip the House of Delegates in Virginia. And the Senate is also up in Virginia. And we actually only need to flip two seats to flip the Senate. Virginia should be a true blue state. And so, you know, it's going to be tough because this is what gerrymandering does. It makes these elections tough, but I think we can do it. Um, So that's our big focus in 2019 is to flip those chambers blue and turn Virginia into a blue state just in time for redistricting, which will be very, very important. And then in 2020, a lot of states are having elections. This is when most states have their elections. And, you know, we are a mighty organization, but we're not that big. We have about 45,000 people across the country signed up through our website. And so we have to be strategic in picking the races that we are going to participate in. 
And like I said, we want to pick those races where there's going to be some higher level value for Democrats. We look for those states where we can flip a chamber blue by just winning, you know, one to four seats where we need to hold a chamber blue like we did in Delaware or where we need to make inroads into these badly gerrymandered states to lay the foundation for someday flipping those those chambers. We did a lot of work on that last year in 2018. We brought Pennsylvania up to be within just three seats of flipping. So now in 2020, Pennsylvania is going to be a prime state for us. We're going to try to flip that Senate. And there's a number of other states that also happen to be strategic presidential states, North Carolina, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin. So it's not a coincidence that these states that need help in their state legislatures are also kind of the battleground states federally. And that's where we're going to be focusing our efforts. You know, it's funny because I just learned about that Virginia race or there's actually just I think you said two seats in Virginia Mm -hmm. and I you know could have kicked myself because I was thinking you know I should be paying attention to this, but yet I'm paying attention to the primaries, the presidential race. No, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, people, this is not what we're reading about at all. What we're reading about is what did Trump tweet about and, you know, how the Democratic primary candidates are polling when we're a year and a half away from the election, you know, and that's that's kind of the sexy stuff. But that allows Republicans and political operatives to kind of win very important elections under the radar. And so that's part of our mission is to raise the level of interest and dialogue and coverage of these state elections, which do matter so much. But it's not it's not anybody's fault. This is not what we're reading in the news. Um, so it really takes an extra effort to to understand about these things. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about the decision that came down with the census, right? So the 2020 census is going to be printed without that citizenship question. How important is that? Like when I talk to you in the scope of things, it doesn't seem as important as focusing on these state races. I just don't know how consequential that that decision is really. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it definitely is important. I think it, it, you know, there, there are a number of, of angles here. The reason I think it's so important is because we are living right now in a time where the government is openly hostile to immigrants or people that weren't born here. And so the risk that people would not fill out the survey if they had to answer that question was very high. And of course, not collecting data about people who are not citizens in this country would harm communities and states that have high immigrant populations. There are some blue states, there are some red states with those populations. Um, I think it was just malicious of the government, the Trump administration, to want to essentially exclude non-citizens from the census, which was their stated goal, we found out. And that's actually not what the Constitution says. The federal Constitution says every person shall be counted. It doesn't say every citizen. The Republicans, again, are thinking very strategically here, kind of that evil genius mode. And they solicited a study saying that if they only counted citizens, that would help them get elected if they only let citizens get counted and vote. I mean, this stuff is it's dystopian. You know, it, it, it so blatantly goes against what even the, the text of the Constitution says. So, you know, the interesting thing about that case for me was I was a little bit surprised it came out the way it did. I was pretty convinced, um, you know, the Supreme Court has 
has been very, very politicized. I think the only reason that Justice Roberts came out against it was because there was so much evidence that the Trump administration had just blatantly lied. They lied when they said they wanted that question to be on there so that the DOJ could enforce voting rights, which was just a lie because the DOJ hasn't filed a single voting rights action since Trump was elected. And of course, the emails came out showing that that was not their true purpose. I think that John Roberts of of the Republicans on the court has this feeling he understands the Supreme Court is getting politicized. And I think he would rubber stamp anything the Trump administration does unless there was blatant evidence that they had racist and political motives. And so I think he just couldn't do it in this case. But what he essentially said was cover your tracks better next time and and we'll we'll give it the OK. Um, so that was a long kind of that's kind of my legal commentary and what I think happened. But I think that it was the correct result, both because the administration clearly had a pretextual reason for putting that question on there, but also because the Constitution says we have to count everybody and we should count everybody. And hopefully not having that question is going to remove the obstacles that that might have been there for people being nervous about filling it out. Now, that said, there are a lot of other ways that the government can play with the results of this. One way is they are not giving enough funding to make sure the census gets filled out. And so that's where the states come in and states are going to have to fill that gap with funding, with people power. There are a lot of nonprofits that are getting involved to make sure that their communities fill out the census. There are a lot of things the administration can do to try to skew the results and those can be um, ameliorated at least to some degree in the states. And so it's it's an interesting thing where it's not directly related to states, but it actually like everything does come down to the states because that's where things get implemented and where you really can help or hinder an effort from the federal level. You know, honestly, I think they did have a bit of success in that people are now spooked, right? They're spooked about filling out the census. Mm-hmm. And so we probably won't get an accurate count after all. Mm hmm. Completely. I I completely agree. You'd be hard pressed to get anybody who's not living here um, with documentation to engage at all with the government. I mean, we're seeing, of course, reports that they are not going to hospitals. They're not um, getting the assistance that they are legally entitled to um, because they're so scared. And I think that's just such a tragic um, it's such a tragic effect of this administration. I don't know if you remember this, but like shortly after the election, I remember hearing stories about people walking their kids to school and being followed or picked up by ICE. Right. And, you know, people were running scared and hiding. Yeah, it's it's I mean, my husband is a high school teacher. And the day after the election, the principal had to come on the the intercom and tell the school that they were safe. They cared about them. They were going to help them because he had he teaches in a place that's a high immigrant population and people were scared. And this is in the Bay Area in California. Um, this is a real thing. Words matter. Actions matter. And it is it is really affecting the people that live in our communities. Wow. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about that I feel like not enough people talk about is the risk of a constitutional convention, right? Like we talk a lot about gerrymandering and that's a really real risk, right? That's really important. But is there still a risk of, you know, Republicans voting for a constitutional convention? And first of all, what is that? (laughs) And how big of a risk? I mean, I know what it is, but, you know, listeners probably don't know what it is. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, um, 
And you're right. There is definitely a movement on the right to call a constitutional convention. And that would be just what it sounds like. Representatives from each state getting together and trying to literally hash out a new constitution. And that does require, uh, I think, 37 states to vote in favor of having the constitution. And then it, it would, of course, need to be ratified by the states as well. Um, I think it's a pretty low risk because both sides know that if they call a constitution, everything's on the table. So, you know, certainly there are things we would love to change about our constitution, but there are things that we wouldn't want to change. And nobody really knows how that would shake out. I think it's a pretty low possibility that anything, even if we called a constitution and actually got a new constitution, that that would get ratified by enough states. Um, It's so interesting because I actually just was reading a book on our first constitutional convention and how it all happened in secret. So nobody knew what they were talking about. Nobody knew the resolutions. And, you know, the the commentary from the founders is that it, it would not have passed if people knew what was happening in real time, because it requires people to make compromises. It requires negotiation. And that's just not possible when everything is happening on live TV and every politician has an incentive to make him or herself look good or or show the people back home that they're fighting. So, you know, that's just like one other aspect I was thinking about how it, it would never happen unless it happened in secret. And I don't know if we'd ever allow it to happen in secret these days. Um, so, yeah, I, it's not to me a pressing thing or a huge risk, but it's certainly something we should be keeping tabs on. And it is absolutely true that that's another thing that could be brought about based on people um, having power in states. If enough Republicans control enough states and they vote to have a convention, then then it could happen. See, I feel like that's the way we felt about abortion restrictions three years ago, five years ago. Right. And now we're thinking, you know, oh, how foolish we didn't take this seriously. But I mean, maybe I'm being paranoid. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I I always thought that abortion restrictions were on the chopping block. I mean, I'm a lawyer and obviously I, I live in that legal world. And so I think I understood how precarious the Supreme Court was. And when Trump won, you know, the the biggest gut punch to me was immediately the Supreme Court because I knew that meant that Merrick Garland's seat was was now stolen. And then, of course, you know, it was pretty clear that Kennedy was going to retire. And then the next oldest justices are are on the left. And so um, but yeah, I think I think a lot of people were naive about that and thinking that that couldn't happen. But if you really look at the history ever since Roe was passed, really, of all of the damage that Republicans have been doing to reproductive rights, um, it actually felt very, very real. But that said, the the abortion restrictions really can happen on a state level. I mean, you just need your state legislature to approve that. A constitutional convention, you'd need 37 states to agree to the exact same document. And there'd certainly be a lot of mobilization around that from various interest groups. And given that I think politics tend to, they're just kind of broken these days, unless you do have unilateral supermajorities, it's really hard to get anything done. I mean, Congress can't even pass bipartisan legislation right now. So yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly something to keep our eyes on, but I'm less concerned about it because even if we just proposed a constitutional amendment, like one change to the constitution, I find that to be very, very hard to get through the states. We can't even get the Equal Rights Amendment past the states. So um, yeah. so yeah, I guess on maybe on the larger scheme of things, it's something that I'm not that concerned about. 
Yeah. Okay. I feel like the primary is important, right? But I feel like we've got, you know, a good six months before we really need to put any energy into, you know, whoever's the nominee. You know, what should people be focusing on right now? Because I feel like a lot of energy is being spent around the primary when there's really little we can do right now, except, you know, watch debates and, you know, support our candidate and send donations. What should people be focusing on now in relation to state races. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the primary stuff is, it's interesting to read about and watch. Um, I'm not involved at all because my focus is on what's happening now. There are elections happening in four months that will have great consequences for us everywhere in the country, um, specifically those elections in Virginia. And that's something that you can really do with your time. You can, we have volunteers making phone calls. We have volunteers writing postcards. We have volunteers planning trips to Virginia to knock on doors for races that are happening this year that will have a really big impact. And I will say, you know, on the presidential level, of course, it is important that we do everything we can to defeat Donald Trump. But I also don't want people to have the delusion that just because we put a Democrat in the White House, that everything is solved. I mean, the reality is that these problems that we are experiencing right now with the Trump administration have to some degree always been here. Um, We just kind of brushed them under the rug because we felt that we had a democratic president and so nothing bad was gonna happen. But the truth is that we've, we've had an immigration crisis for over a decade. We have a big problem with the criminal justice system. That, that problem has persisted for decades. Healthcare, is not solved. These are these are problems that have persisted. They are being um, exaggerated right now because Trump is essentially trolling us with all of these crazy right wing policies. Mm-hmm. But they are still there. It's not that they get solved just because we elect a Democrat to the White House. And so I want people to be really aware that this is not a fix it solution to win the presidency. What fixes this is actually to win power at all of the other levels of government, particularly in the states where, as I said before, policy is going to be become so important in the states. So, you know, I say this, I say this often, which is that, of course, I hope Trump gets defeated. Of course, I want a good progressive Democrat in the White House, but it's not really about that person. It's not about any one person. We are a government that is supposed to be run by the people. And unless the people get involved and stay involved, we abdicate that responsibility to the elite few who have the money and power to run everything. So I think it is incumbent upon all of us as residents of this country to participate civically, to engage, Whatever that means, whether it is you donate or whether you spend an hour or two a week making phone calls or whether you email all your friends and tell them to donate and make phone calls. If we all engage more than we have in the past and we get all of our friends to engage more than they have in the past, and then we have them do the same thing, that is how we're actually going to turn this around. It's not one person winning one race. It's all of us getting engaged, staying engaged and demanding the change that we want to see. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Rita Bosworth, thank you. Thank you so much for your work. I hope that this interview will help people get to work on the state level. And thank you so much for everything you've done. Absolutely. It was so fun to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. To find out more about how you can help win state legislative races, see details on the Sister District Project and how you can volunteer and how you can support them in today's show notes. This is so important, so incredibly important. And if you do sign up for the Sister District Project, please let me know. 
drop me a note on Twitter or on Facebook, and that's at Electorat. Also, if you find the Electorat helpful, please do one more thing. Please review and rate the Electorat on iTunes. I know that there are a lot more of you who actually listen but haven't had the time to leave a review. But it's really easy and it takes less than a minute. Go to iTunes, hit the Ratings and Review tab, and click Write a Review. One of my goals with the Electorate is to help people better understand the political process and how they can help move things in a more positive, progressive direction. When you leave a review for the Electorate, that actually helps. It helps Electorate improve our discoverability on iTunes, thus helping more people learn about the political process. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.